you, who's at the right address this morning, fam? Yeah. If you are at 3105 North Oak Park, if you're on our YouTube.com slash The Shy, you are at the right place here to gather with the saints. Welcome, family. Uh, man, so many exciting things taking place in our midst as a church. These things really do excite us, man, because God is doing his thing. So uh, we just want to give him praise for that. Just want to reiterate some of the things Josh uh, Phillips was saying. Um, man, we, we really are looking forward to our time of refreshments after service. If you've been around the brook before 2020, you know that one thing we valued was eating food together every Sunday after service. And so having that start up, it's going to be incremental. We're not going to be able to just do it every single time right off the bat, but we're getting it going. And that's exciting. So please, even if it's for five minutes, head downstairs after service, grab a cup of coffee, get to know somebody. And um, man, that's where actually life really begins to happen and grow. Um, life also happens at the brook because our God's at work, fam. And he works through the prayers of his people. And uh, every Sunday morning before our service, we have a team of folks who are praying downstairs. When you enter our building to the right, there's a prayer room. And they're praying there from 9.15 till about 9.50, 9.55, just bringing the requests that you fill out to the Lord. They're bringing the requests of our Sunday mornings. And they're making war, family. And, um, and I want to encourage you, even once a month, say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come early once a month. Uh, maybe you can't do it every week. We all know it is sometimes craziness getting here on a Sunday morning. You're like, 9.15, I could barely make it by 11.15, right? Um, but just once a month, say, you know what, I'm going to just, we're going to make our best effort. I'm going to lay out my clothes beforehand. I'm having my breakfast ready. I'm going to wake up, throw those clothes on, eat on the way, and be there. Um, and as, as same thing as after I preach the sermons every week, we have prayer teams that come to the right and left of me on this stage. And it's not because we need more decorations or anything like that. They're here, they're here to, 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 um, to bring your requests to God. They're there to stand in the gap. They're there to intercede for your prayer requests. So even as the word is being brought forth, whether by me or someone else, as we're singing songs, as you hear scripture read, and you're like, man, God, just that, that arrow from the Lord went right there to your heart and pierced you. And you're like, I need to pray about this. That's what our prayer team is there for. And so we want to make sure, family, that we're not just going through motions. We want to make sure we're not just, just showing up because we're supposed to show up or we feel like it's our obligation or duty. We, we want to pursue God, family. And so that's our prayer and our aim. And so I'm excited about all the things God is doing as we gather on Sundays, but throughout the week as we live life together. Uh, speaking of throughout the week, this past week, family, I built a desk with, from Ikea. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I know I deserve that. I know I deserve that. I read those pictures. I couldn't read any of the, the captions. Those are like Swedish or something or other. But I, I read those pictures, and I put that thing together this week, man. So um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I've done a few of those in my life. But uh, as you guys know, Ikea Furniture, that, that, ain't no, that ain't a small task. So, so definitely I appreciate the applause, uh, and I appreciate you uh, enjoying that story. But if I keep talking about it, you'll be like, okay, move on, right? Because you don't care about my Ikea desk story. Uh, some stories are really worth telling, aren't they? And other stories are kind of like, okay, that's a one and done for me. 
My desk story, that's a one and done, isn't it? Uh, but the power of story is the fact that it causes a memory to live on. And when we cease to tell stories, the memory of the thing we've talked about in many of our minds begins to move on. And what if I told you there's a story much greater than an Ikea desk story, family? What if I told you there's a story of a God who loves people who are so messed up? What if I told you about a story of a God who would step into our mess to rescue people who don't deserve even a moment of it? That's a story worth telling. That's a story that's worth telling over and over and over again. And in the Bible, we find that God has this story here laid out for us in the pages of scriptures. But we also find warnings in the Bible of generations that forgot God's story. We find a caution tale of a people who forgot to talk about what God did. And what ought to have been very clearly in front of them became a blurred story, produced a blurred vision. Some things ought not be forgotten. And in the Bible, there is a specific book of the Bible that reveals to us what happens when we cease to tell the story of God. And that book of the Bible is the book of Judges. Now, family, this book of the Bible is ratchet. God's people are wilding and out. It is the wild, wild west of the Bible. There are stories in this that you're going to be like, what am I reading? What are you saying? What is happening? And the reason we're told, as we'll see this morning, is God's people forgot about God. And it began then, it says, multiple times in the book of Judges, God's people began to do what was right in their own eyes. In fact, Judges 17, 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or in Judges 14, 3, this guy named Samson wanted this woman who was not supposed to be for him, was not among God's people, worshiped different gods, and he tells his dad, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. It is a story of what people do when they do what is right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is a vision test. It's the eye test. And on the flip side of that, we see this refrain multiple times. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Say they did what was right in their own eyes, and in God's eyes they did what was evil. Judges 2, 11, 3, 7, 4, 1, 6, 1, 10, 6, 13, 1 tell us God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a vision test. It's an eye test. It's a test of what God sees when he sees me, and it's a test for which what ways am I living my life according to whose eyes. Now, the book of Judges family is a, is a wild book, and there are many stories that are quite famous, many characters that are quite famous. There's a woman named Deborah, a warrior. The story of Gideon, y'all remember Gideon with the fleece, the army, the original 300? That's Gideon. The story of Samson and Delilah, that's not a love story, by the way. The story of a guy named Jephthah who supposedly perhaps even sacrificed his daughter. The story of people who did remarkable things for God and had epic failures that went with it. 
It's a story of what happens when we run into a merciful God and a rebellious people. And ultimately what we find in the book of Judges is that people who did what was right in their own eyes because they were influenced by the culture around them. So why take a couple months, which we will take, going through the book of Judges? Well, there are a number of reasons for it. The first of which is we want to learn how to resist conforming to the world around us, family. See, the book of Judges is a story of God's people entering into the promised land after they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But as they went into this land, they became influenced by the people who inhabited, to, inhabited the land. And they began to adopt their ways of worship, adopt their practices, adopt their morality. One writer says this, the evidence of their conforming is also parallel to what we see in the church. Our own preoccupation with material prosperity, which turns Christianity into a fertility religion. Our syncretistic and aberrant forms of worship. Our refusal to obey the Lord's call to separation from the world. Our divisiveness and competitiveness. Our moral compromises. Our male exploitation and abuse of women and children. Our reluctance to answer the call to service. And when we finally go, our propensity to displace thy kingdom come with my kingdom come. Our eagerness to fight the Lord's battles with the world's resources and strategies. Our willingness to stand up and defend for perpetrators of evil instead of justice. These and many other lessons will be drawn from the leaves of this fascinating book as we proceed, writes that writer. So yeah, fam, we need to hear this book. It's a story of generational failure. There's another reason. is that because God's people did not let their belief in God to influence the way they lived their life. And there was a disconnect that led them down a pathway to perdition and produced misery. Another reason why we need the book of Judges is because in the midst of all this craziness, we see God step in and show mercy. I mean, it's like one story after the other, you're like, all right, this is it. God, you're, you're finally done now. And then it says the Lord raised up. Judges. Judges were oftentimes military leaders who would step in and bring deliverance for God's people because God loved them, but not because they were good people. In fact, we see this kind of flow in the book of Judges almost in every story. God's people do what's evil and what's right in their own eyes. God sends another nation to discipline them. God's people cry out for help. God sends the judges to deliver them. They experience peace in the land. And then God's people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. They go after God's. God sends another nation to, to uh, oppress them. They cry out to God. God sends a, a judge to deliver them. They have peace in the land. And then God's people go back to their own ways. And over and over you're thinking, this is the last one, right, God? This is the last one. And we see a God who is gracious. Yes, a God who brings about justice, but God who is gracious. So we need this eye test, family. And what we're going to feel throughout this book is this weighty sense of responsibility to live for the Lord. God wants your whole life, Brooke family. He, he wants all of you. And I know from personal experience, as many of you do, 
is when you start dabbling outside of God is when you start feeling different heartaches in life. It's when you start messing with things, you're like, this is not what God wanted for me, but I'm going after it. And all it does is leave you empty. And family, this is where we want to say, God, I want you and you only. When we go after what's right in our own eyes, it will injure our own spiritual growth. And then as we'll see today, injure our own witness to future generations. So I'm going to invite you after that long introduction, to join me in the book of Judges in the Bible. It is the seventh book of the Bible, right after the book of Joshua. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, family. I'm going to be covering a large portion of text today. I'll only be reading a small portion of it. But we will be in Judges chapter 1, and I'll be preaching from verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 15, essentially. But this is what's going on. After Joshua, who replaced Moses, is ready to lead people, God's people, into, is, into the promised land. Remember the story of Jericho. This happened right before the book of Judges. And this is what we see in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into, this, into their hands. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek. And fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now jump over to verse, to verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plains, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in, the, in Jerusalem to this day. Now jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said I would never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. Their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. 
And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, this is a flashback, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Can you say all the days of Joshua? All the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders. Can you say that? All the days of Joshua. Who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the, son, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then this ominous verse. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. Father in heaven, we come, Lord, this morning because we want to hear from you. God, we, we want you to search our hearts, try us and know our thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in us. And God, we pray that you would lead us in the way that's everlasting. God, I pray you would soften our hearts to hear from you today. Give us those ears to hear and the eyes to see. And Lord, I pray for precision with my words. I pray for, for your power to go forth. Holy Spirit, we ask that we would sense your presence here in the most tangible of ways because we need you, God. God, we pray that you would just meet us here, Lord. In a sense that where we walk out today, we would say, God, you were here among us, God. And Lord, we know sometimes your presence comes and it makes us feel a sense of joy and hope. And other times, Lord, it brings conviction. But God, we pray that you'd be present and bring what we need to feel today. And so, Lord, we just bring ourselves before you and say, Lord, have your way in us. We bless you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated, fam. All right, I got to give you all some context to get a better understanding of the book of Judges here. All right, I've laid out kind of the big picture of what's going on. But there's some things that are happening here in these opening chapters that we really got to understand to feel the weight of them, all right? Y'all with me here? And so when God brought his people out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. God brought Moses in to speak to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? He said, No. I'm not going to do it. God brings 10 plagues. Finally, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Moses brings God people out. He brings them to, and God parts the Red Sea. He brings them into a wilderness. He's planning to bring them into the promised land. But then God's people rebel against God. And God's like, all right, is that how it is? I'm going to leave you all in the wilderness for the next 40 years until the generation, basically 20 years and up, die off. And after they die off, I'll bring forth another generation and I'll give to them the promised land because you rebelled from me. Well, that's when Joshua comes onto the scene. It's his responsibility to lead God's people into the promised land. And in order to do so, God parts the Jordan River. They walk through the river. They march around Jericho. The walls fall down. And God makes it clear to them, the land is yours. 
The promised land is yours. But this is what you must do, God says. Living in the land are a people group called the Canaanites. And basically, God says these people have been wicked for many, many, many generations. And I've given them opportunity to repent time and time again, but they've only done what's more and more evil. In fact, God tells his people in Leviticus, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Well, what things? They practiced child sacrifices. They, 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 they practiced trying to speak to the dead and bringing them up. They practiced all kinds of sexual immorality. They practiced idolatry, worshiping the Baals and these other things called the Ashtara. They were morally bankrupt. And God had given them opportunity, but as God always does, he's a just God. And God's like, I'm going to need to bring judgment on the people of the land. And the tool with which God would judge the land was the people of Israel. And God says, when I send you to the promised land, you must remove the people as my judgment on them. This was a one-time thing, family. This is what God spoke at that point, at that time, for that nation. And that's the command God had given his people as an expression of God's justice. And so in the book of Judges is when they're supposed to enter the land and do what God told them to do. Well, we see immediately the story of them capturing this king and cutting off his thumbs and big toes. Like, that sounds cruel, don't it? And it says that they brought him to Jerusalem and the man died there. Which then tells us that they spared this other king. They didn't do what God had told them to do. God says, destroy them, but they spared the king and kept him as a trophy of their expeditions until the man died there. In fact, we're told later on, as I read, that they were unable to drive out people because they had chariots of iron. Did you catch on to that when I read that? Chariots of iron, they had this technology, and God's people were unable to defeat their armies. But God's people are the same people that God defeated Pharaoh's armies by parting a sea with a staff made out of wood. Where was the disconnect? Was it because their God wasn't strong enough? Or was it because they were not seeking their God? In fact, we're told... Several different times in chapter 1, like in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the, the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out. Time and time again, God's people did not do what God had told them to do. And here's something I want us to understand. When we adjust God's commands and make them say what, we, what he didn't say, we become God because our word has replaced God's word. They decided to take God's command in their own hands, fashion it according to their own desires, and this is what happened. They spared the people of the land and then made them their slaves. And God's people did not complete the task. This is a big problem in God's sight. Because God's saying, hey, you were my tool for judgment, but you didn't do it. You left it incomplete. And we might think, well, they did a lot of it, God. Like, it's not all that bad. Well, here's something interesting. On the radio this past week, uh, our family listens to Boost Radio. 
um, which is a Christian kind of hip-hop pop station. And they're doing this fundraiser this week. And as I was listening on the radio at one point, they said, we have reached 77% of our goal. And they're like, yeah, this is great. Like, that's really good, but it's not our complete goal. Because, like, you wouldn't want to eat a 77% cooked chicken tonight, would you? I'm like, that's true. Right? Or you don't want to prefer a 77% on an exam. Or you don't want to get 77% of your paycheck, right? And so, because you want the whole thing. And God's like, hey, I want you to obey my will completely because partial obedience is disobedience. And they might have felt like they were doing God's will, but God's like, you missed out on this. You didn't do what I told you to do. And that's why in chapter 2, the, the angel of the Lord shows up to speak to God's people and reveal to them their failures. The angel of the Lord tells them in chapter 2, verse 1, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? God's people began to make covenants and promises and intermarry with the people of the land who worshiped other gods, who rejected the God of Israel. And God's like, you've done the very opposite of what I've commanded you to do. And family, I think sometimes we feel the need to fashion or this desire to fashion God's commands because we tend to think that God is holding out on us, family. See, but God's commands are more than just a list of do's and don'ts, but they're an invitation to life and life to the fullest. And God is offering life to his people, and he's giving them these commands, hey, just walk by my ways, and you'll see that my ways are best. But when they start fashioning and readjusting God's will and his commands, they strayed. You see, their lack of success in the land was not the result of a weaker military, but of a weaker faith in God. They were unsuccessful because they ceased to trust God. And God tells them, this is not okay. Basically what God is saying, my, my deliverances ought to have produced devotion. But that's not what happened. Now God does tell them, I'll never abandon you. But these people that you spared will now be a thorn in your side. The world around you, as you conform to it, will continue to affect the way that you live. You see, for God's people, the further they removed from God, the more blurry their picture of God became, family. I've got pretty bad vision. I'm like negative 7.2 on my eyes. I've got, I got rough vision because and, you know, when I get to the, doc, the, uh, the eye doctor's, and I got no contacts. They're like, can you see that? I'm like, I can't see anything. I can't even see your face right now. <laughs> literally. Literally. And I know the further removed I get from an object, it goes from blurry to like a blob. But the way my vision is, the closer I get to it, the more clearer it becomes. And it's not that the object in itself is blurry. It's my vision of the object that's blurry. And God's people are there, and God's like, you see me as blurry, but I'm not blurry. You see me as blurry because you moved away from me. And the further away from me you move, the less of a semblance of me you can see. And God's like, this drift has caused you 
to be in a place where you're inviting injury into your spiritual lives. See, my deliverances ought to have produced devotion, but it didn't do it. It produced compromise from them. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. At this part of the story, I'm already here. I'm like, man, God, I I got a gut check. Because as I look back sometimes, even from Sunday to Sunday, and I'm sitting here getting ready to preach, I'm like, Lord, what's my vision of you been like the past six days since the last time I sat here? How clear have you been to my side? How has my passion for you shown over the last six days? God, am I I really pursuing you? And this book shows us like a mirror. And again, we're going to see God's grace, and that's what we're getting to. But sometimes we got to let the guilt there sink in enough for, for it to draw us to grace. Sometimes we, get to, we go straight to grace. We're like, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. God, forgive me, I'm good, right? And God, look what you've done. Look what I've done. God has to remind them of his work. And what we see here is the people realize right away of their failure, and it says they begin to weep in verses 4 and 5. They begin to weep because they see their guilt. But as we see, they didn't change their ways. They felt bad, but not bad enough to do something about it. And then the book comes to this part that I'm going to camp at for the next few minutes. In verse 6, it's kind of a flashback to before Joshua died. It says he dismissed the people of Israel and each went to his inheritance to take possession. Basically, Joshua's like, all right, before he died, he's like, Israel, we're at the promised land. We're at the front door. All right, Judah, go there. Simeon there. Gad, Naphtali, different tribes is yours. These are your lands. Now you need to go there and take possession of it. God has given it into your hands. And it says... The people in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, served the Lord all the days of Joshua, their fearless leader. And they served the Lord all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So those who knew Joshua but lived longer than them, than him, the people of Israel are like, we're still serving God. Joshua, it says, or it says that these people had seen, in verse 7, all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. This is why they served God. Because they saw God at work. Like, there's nothing like seeing God do something to cause you to want to serve God. Uh, Let me backtrack backtrack again to remind us what they saw God do. As they stood in front of this river, this Jordan River, and there are about a million people deep, they got to get on the other side of this river. God dries up a path across the Jordan River just like he had done in the Red Sea for Moses. He does for them there as they're entering a promised land. They walk through, the ground is dry. They witness the miracle, family. And those people serve the Lord. They get into the promised land area. They get to this major city of Jericho. And God's like, I want you to take the city, but without using a sword. I want you to march around this city seven times uh, for seven days, once a day. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. And at that point, you're going to blow your trumpets and horns, and the city's going to collapse. Sounds like a good battle strategy, right? Lo and behold, God does it. The city collapses. They witness God's work. 
There's another story where they're out in the battlefield fighting and the, they're starting to get, the, the day's moving on. And they're like, man, we need more daylight to fight because God is with us. But if the sun sets, we're going to be in trouble. And you know what God does? He doesn't let the sun set, it says. It says that God causes the sun to stand still for a 24-hour period. They saw that. They saw the sun there at midnight. And so this generation with, Moses, with Joshua and the generation after Joshua are like, yo, we saw God do what he did. And they served the Lord all the days of Joshua. They served the Lord all the days of the elders. Joshua lived 110 years. And then verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for them. You see, their failures to obey God affected a generation after them. There rose up a generation who didn't know the Lord. Now, I studied this word know, and it's not just this idea of knowing something by learning from a textbook kind of thing, but it's something you learn through experience, family. It's the difference between watching a YouTube video on how to do an oil change and actually getting out of the car and doing an oil change. It's the difference between someone giving you their recipe for arroz con gandules or picking up the olla and actually making it. It's the difference between mapping out how to take a road trip and get in the car and driving it. You can learn one thing by sitting at a desk and reading it, but the other thing you learn through experience. And you and I know that what you learn by experience Experience is solidified more in your mind than what you learn simply by a textbook. So there arose a generation who didn't know the Lord. And I'm there to ask, in what ways did they not know the Lord? I mean, they had to have heard about Jericho. They had to have heard about the Red Sea. They had to have heard about the sun standing still and even the Jordan River getting dried up. So because as I read this, I don't think their issue was a lack of knowledge in their head about the Lord, but it was a lack of an experience of this Lord that they learned about. Family, there is a great danger here. God's people knew about God, but they didn't know God. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. I mean, let this sink in. Where was the drop-off here? Well, we see in the earlier chapter, they didn't obey God. And so I wonder if their children heard them talk about God, but never saw them obey the God that they talked about. I wonder if their children are like, yeah, you, you talk about God, but he sounds very past tense. They didn't know the Lord, it says. They didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know the creator. Their, their knowledge of God lacked experience. They didn't have an acquaintance with God. There was a failure of generational proportions. See, family, this is a warning for us. If our faith with God is not much more than a Grammy nod to God, I thank God. If our faith 
in God is not much more than a few Christianese phrases. It will not only injure your spiritual life, but injure those who are watching you. They didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know the works of the Lord. Their, their God became a tale, stories. It was mythologized, no different than Zeus and Athena, Hercules and Beowulf, Yahweh. I mean, is your God even real? Their children must have asked. You see, the sins of one generation became visible in the next generation. And there arose another generation right after Joshua who didn't even know the Lord. We're told in verses 11 to 15 that so then begins the sequence of judges. God gives them over to the nations around them to oppress them because God wants his people's devotion. And as a way of God say, hey, I'm going to make life hard for you so that you can run to me. You know, if I ended things right here, this is pretty ominous, isn't it? You know, even for me as a father, I know there's a generation that follows me everywhere I go in my children. As a pastor, I know there's a generation that follows me here at the brook. As a, as a disciple of Jesus, I realize people are watching me. And flip that script, people. You are being watched the same. I know this is weighty here, but let's, let, this, let, this, let this marinate for a moment, family. There are people who follow you and, are, and, and are, 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 are seeing what you model and seeing what you speak, and they're doing so passively. What I mean is this. You don't even know they're around watching you, but they're watching you. And there are others who are doing so actively. They're very much in your life. You see them at real community. They see you when you clock in in the mornings. They see you in the hallways of school. They see you when you're, when you're here at the brook and gather with the church. They see you at home. They see you at the block. They're, they're seeing you, and you know they see you. How is your life modeling the fact that there is a God who is actually real? Not a mythologized Zeus or Athena, but a God who is real. A God who's not just historical, but a God who is present tense. A God who is real, family. This is the disconnect. And this is why a generation raised up who didn't even know Yahweh because they saw a generation not living for him. They saw a generation that gave him lip service but didn't give him their obedience. They saw a generation that gave him 77% of their devotion. They saw a generation that began to compromise and go after other gods. Oh, family, this is the weight of judges. But as I said, we learn from the book of Judges not just this weight, but also the realities of God's mercy, family. As much as these opening chapters hurt, as much as we realize we've dropped the ball, there might be that young person in your life that you realize you need to disciple them and you're like, man, I haven't done it. 
I haven't been living life on life with them, or, or maybe I've been compromised and they see it. Maybe you feel the weight of that. You must also feel the weight of the fact that there is a God who makes sure that Judges doesn't end in chapter 2. That there's a God who makes sure that the book of Judges is not the final act in the story. Because although Israel, who was God's son, his child, went into the promised land and didn't obey, God had another son who would go in and would obey as he walked this earth. And his name is Jesus. Jesus would go to the cross and wouldn't just take 77% of your sin. Jesus would go to this earth and not just complete 77% of God's will. But Jesus would come down to this earth and do what you and I could not do, and that is pay for our sin so that we can be forgiven when we fail. Jesus doesn't leave the job half done, family. He perfectly and completely obeys the will of his Father. And he has the power to break the sins in our story. He has the power to break the generational sins of the stories before you. And he has the power to break the things that you feel like you're fearful to give to another generation after you. Jesus can do that, family. Jesus has the power to break the chains of sin, replacing them with grace and forgiveness. So instead, let the people around you hear that, yeah, my God knocked down the walls of Jericho. But he also knocked down the walls of my sin in the present tense. Yeah, my God led his people into the promised land, but my God also now still leads me into the promised land and will lead me in glory. Instead, let them hear that, yes, God caused the sun to stand still to give more time for his people to have victory. But my God gave me time when I didn't deserve it so that I could put my faith in him. Family, I'm about to preach to my own family. Let them hear instead that there is a God, yes, who dried up the Jordan River so his people can cross through that way. But there's a God who still makes a way for his people to walk through the storms and the trials and the unbelief and the fears and the discouragement and the sadness. And he holds my hand through it all. Let them hear that my God is not just a God of yesterday, but a God of today who's working now, family. He's not just past tense, fam. He's present tense. And this generation and the generation after us needs to know that our God is still at work among us. And we see that, family, and we model that when we follow our God. We see his commands as his grace, that these aren't do's and don'ts, but they're invitations to the abundant life he offers. And his deliverances ought to produce Devotion. Family, as we go through this series, I want us to feel that. The grace of God and the responsibility to those here in our church family. When I think of younger generations, I think of our Brook kids. I think of our Brook youth. And we've had a very concerted effort since the Brook started to serve the kids and the youth that God has brought us. And we want to continue to be faithful, but we need the adults. We need, a, we need adults to be a part of that work. If you see someone's kids, don't think those are just someone's kids, but those are our kids. Those are our youth. These are our sons and daughters. It's collective because we're a family. Man, this past week, one of the bonfires last Thursday was hosted in our home, and we had the middle schoolers. 
And as I sat around a fire with four other youth, I was blown away by what God is doing among them. And I know our other leaders can testify the same. I was so blessed to know that many of these youth have had people model for them what needs to be modeled. And we need to keep that going and make change direction where it's not gone. But one youth in particular, I will leave him unnamed, but he knows who he is, stuck out to me. Um, they were all transparent. In fact, man, as we were talking, um, I was sitting with a, another brother, one of our adults named Brian. And I was like, man, Brian, like, we're looking at each other like these youth are thoughtful. They're sincere. They're passionate. And I know some of our youth, I know even you might be here like, man, I'm not quite there yet. And that's all right. God wants to bring you there. But we, we prayed for our youth at the end of this little discussion time. And uh, we're sitting there by the fire. We bowed our head. We prayed. And after the prayer, I was like, all right, make some more s'mores. And one of you said, hey, I got one more thing to say. I said, yeah, wh what's up? He says, you know, as we bowed our heads to pray, I closed my eyes. And here we are in front of this fire. And I still feel the heat. I still feel the warmth of the fire on my body, but my eyes were closed and I couldn't see it. He said, that reminds me of God, he told me. That I can't always see him with my own eyes, but I could feel him present in my life doing his thing. I was like, go ahead, bro. Let's go. I said, I said you guys need to tell that to somebody. I said, I'm going to use that on Sunday. <laughs> Family, this is what's at stake. This is what we want to see. We want to see. We want to, we want to hear. This is what's at stake. But family, this doesn't happen passively. We are in our own battles. I'm in my battles. You are in your battles. And we need each other as a community. Our kids need us. Our youth need us. We need us, family. And so let it be that our vision is not a blurred vision. Let it be that our sight of God is up close and personal, so we see him with the clarity with which he wants us to see him, so that our own spiritual lives and those that we're discipling will be affected for generations, so that they will not raise up a generation at the brook who doesn't know the Lord, yes. family. Yes. Not on our watch, family. Not on our watch. Now, I'm about to close in prayer, but I know God is tugging on someone's heart here today. And I want you to respond to that tug. Don't resist it. Don't be disobedient. Don't recraft God's command to you to respond however he's calling you to respond. I don't know what that is, but you know what it is. And perhaps what it means is to just come forth for prayer. Perhaps what it means is to make some decisions the moment you leave this room. Perhaps what it means is to finally follow through and obeying what he's been putting on your heart. But family, don't let this time pass without you saying, Lord, my white flag is raised. I surrender to you. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I pray we would heed the warnings, that we'd feel the weight of the call, but also rest in the grace of a God who calls us and walks with us through the commands, Lord. Lord, help us. We feel so inadequate, Lord. Family, you feel inadequate right now? Father, we feel inadequate. Help us, Lord. We thank you for the perfection of your son, Jesus. Thank you for his victory and defeating of sin and death. Thank you for the hope and eternal life that is offered to us through faith. And God, I pray we would walk by that for your glory. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's rise to our feet. Prayer team, please come forward. And fam, let's respond with song. Let's respond with a shout. Let's respond however God's calling us to do it. But let's do it with gladness and expectation.